Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. For many readers, today's text of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 may end up focusing on this man who gets caught up to the third heaven. But that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is, where does my strength come from? And the answer to that is Jesus. Let's look at the text. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality 
that they have practiced. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, the focus of this chapter is not this man getting caught up to the third heaven, but we're going to talk about that. The chapter starts with Paul saying he must go on boasting. It's a continuation of yesterday's passage uh, as Paul was being highly sarcastic of how he could have all these earthly boastings if he wanted to. But ultimately, it comes down to boasting in Christ. And so here he's going to go on with these potential er earthly, even spiritual, but still earthly boasts. And the first one is this vision or this revelation that has been given to him by the Lord. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ. Who is this a reference to? It's a question you can ask your kids. Who does Paul know that went to heaven? For a vision, for a revelation. The common answers that you hear, other than, I don't know, the two most common ones that are talked about are Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul, the one writing this. Just as John, the Apostle, does not refer to himself by the name John, in his gospel. Um, similarly, here, Paul is referring to himself in the third person. I'm going to show you why in the text, Jesus is not the possible answer to this, which leaves us most likely with this being Paul. Fourteen years ago, um, this letter being written in the mid-50s takes us back to around 40 AD, uh, which is a good decade after Christ has ascended into heaven already, so that's certainly part of that. But Paul will go on to say there in verse 2, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. That instantaneously rules out Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul again has written, and he wrote to this very specific same church. The resurrection chapter, that Christ indeed has been raised, that Christ has shattered death, and that the body is risen from the dead. The apostles knew well that the risen Christ still had a physical body, that he still bore in that body the marks, the scars from his crucifixion. So, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Paul cannot say that about Jesus. Paul knows. Paul knows that Jesus ascended body and spirit, into heaven to sit in the heavenly throne room at the right hand of God the Father. Now, what's this third heaven stuff? This is a text that sometimes gets used to make the argument that there are varying levels in heaven. Like, some people get better rewards than others. I don't know that I have an answer on that particular idea scripturally speaking. There seem to be a couple of things that hint at it. He who is faithful over a little uh, will be given much to manage in paradise is the message you get out of Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Jesus telling us in Matthew 6 that we should be storing up for ourselves treasures in the heavens where, where moth and 
and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Is it possible that one of us will have more treasure in heaven than another? That kind of a phrasing made it sound that way, but again, there's just not much there, and when you get to paradise, it's not going to matter. You are not going to be jealous of your neighbor if he has more than you in paradise. Because his more than you would be a thing of stewardship. It would be he is caring for a larger part of the new creation. And if that's the case, we'll just be rejoicing together. So it's not, that question really isn't a big deal, but it's also not what this text is talking about. The idea of the third heaven, you have to know the the mindset, the way of thinking of the the cultures in that part of history, really in most of history. As you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew mindset of the people of Israel, as you read through even the New Testament, as these men, uh, the Gentiles in that area in the first century, when they looked up, everything up is heaven. So you get Genesis 1 and 2, the conversation around creation, and you have, in Hebrew, the word is Shemayim, and it refers to the heavens or the sky. English will translate it one way or the other depending on the translation that you're reading, but it's the birds of the heavens or the birds of the sky. The first heaven in their mindset is what we consider the sky. We don't look out and say, oh, look at the birds flying through the heavens today, but that's their kind of language. The second heaven for them then and their cultural understanding of this is the idea of what we think of as outer space. And the third heaven then for them is what you and I think of when we talk about heaven. The place where God is, where he will take us to be with himself for the judgment, those kinds of things. So Paul is saying he knows someone, likely himself, that had a vision of paradise. And I like that he uses that word paradise there in verse 3. Ask your children which word they like better, heaven or paradise. Personally, hands down, no-brainer, it's paradise. Our picture of heaven ends up being, you know, floating in the clouds, and that's not at all what's promised to us. We are promised a resurrection that the body will be raised, that we will live with Christ forevermore. And this promise of paradise covers that. Uh, The idea of the Garden of Eden being a perfect place that Adam and Eve were placed in to care for God's creation. Well, it's going to be, perhaps, this is our best guess, at least my best guess, everlasting life with Christ is going to be Garden of Eden-esque. No sin, no death, but a perfect heaven, a perfect creation in which we get to live and care for that creation as we love the Lord and love one another. All right, so that, again, that is not what the text is about, but let's keep going here and see what did he even bring that up for? Assuming this is Paul, verse 4, Paul heard things that he cannot speak of. He's not allowed to speak of what he saw in that revelation, in that vision. Uh, Must have been something the Lord showed to him to give him encouragement. 
that he might endure all the things that he was going to endure. So Paul's boasting, verse 5, is not going to be on his own account, but rather he'll boast of his weaknesses. And now he's going to explain the why. So he's not boasting on behalf of the revelations that he's been given, even though he could, just like he could yesterday in all the things that he said. His boasting is not of those things. His boasting is his weakness. And he's going to go on and explain the why of that to us. He refrains from boasting so that no one may think more of him. This reminded me of John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. Paul doesn't want himself put on this pedestal and he's admitting that instead of that verse 7 to keep him from getting a pedestal for himself and and being conceited and thinking so highly of himself the lord humbled him the lord gave him a thorn in the flesh and there's been a lot of conversation over the years what this thorn is some kind of an ailment perhaps a temptation there is something there that paul continues to wrestle with that he cannot overcome He's pleaded with the Lord three times in prayer to take it away from him, and he received a response. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We'll reread the rest of verse 9 too. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Right there. There it is. That's the point of this chapter. That's the purpose of what we're talking about. That's our focus. Not the other stuff, but this. Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. Humanity is a sinful lot. We are sinners through and through. Left to our own devices, we would choose sin all the time. And that is what pride is, by the way. That is what our boasting is. We boast in how great we are, or in the accomplishments that we've made, or how good of a job we've done at raising our children, or whatever it is. It is our pride. And it is, (laughs) the early church considered it to be the highest of all sin, the chief of all sin, from which all other sins come. You've probably heard of, familiar with the seven deadly sins. And pride was not just one of the seven. It was the chief among them. Instead, when we are willing to repent, when we're willing to say that even the greatest that I have to offer is actually nothing, I bring nothing to the table, which is Paul's going to literally say that in a minute. He's going to say, even though I am nothing. When we realize that, when we come to that point and we can confess that before the Lord, the Lord forgives us. The Lord restores us. The Lord glorifies us us. He lifts up his church. He encourages us. He strengthens us. He gives us all good things. The power of Christ is made perfect in our weakness. And so Paul is going to go on boasting not of his strength, but of his weakness. Why? So that he knows Christ is with him. 
if I can look at my life and I can see all the ways that I have failed and yet I know that because of that failure I have Christ. I am blessed. But if I allow my pride to overwhelm me and consume me and to think that I somehow am great on my own or that I can stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and say, Ha! Look at what I've done. I'm condemned. I stand condemned. And I'm nothing. That's the message of the text. And so Paul is willing to, he's, he's able to be content in all things. Again, Weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity. This is revisiting from before, in the previous chapter as well. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's our life, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we've got a little bit more text yet to come. Paul's going to revisit that last chapter, how he's he has been a fool. That's again that sarcasm from yesterday. They forced him to it because they should have commended him. They have forced him to do this earthly boasting stuff in front of them in this letter because they've not done it. The super apostles, you can put air quotes around that if you want, these false teachers that they are, the agents of the devil, um, as he called them, right, servants of Satan from chapter 11 yesterday, they came into the midst of the Corinthian church. They started preaching and teaching. And instead of recognizing them for the falsehood that they were and casting them out, the Corinthians listened to them and allowed their false teachings to spread and grow and gain a foothold. And, and Paul's teaching, the proper teaching of the gospel, has been set aside. Paul is... Paul's argument there, I am not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. It's a pretty low bar, right? Paul acknowledges his emptiness, his worthlessness himself, right? His weakness, but it's in his weakness that he is strong, because it is in his weakness that he has Christ. These super apostles do not have Christ, and so in fact, they have nothing. They have less than nothing. They have the condemnation that he spoke of again in chapter 11, verse 15. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul admits that he has done many signs and wonders in their midst. They got to see even miracles. They are not less favored than the other churches, right? That Paul has given them all that he has, all that he had to give. There was nothing he withheld from them except taking their money. <laughs> And he sarcastically asks for their forgiveness from that. Verse 14, third time he's going to go visit them. The first is a reference to when he planted the church on his second missionary journey. The second visit was the rebuke mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 1. He's not going to be a burden, so he's not going to charge them again because he's not there about money. This is not over earthly goods, but rather it's over you. He is coming seeking the Corinthians he wants them to have a faith that endures. He wants them to be in paradise. And it seems that this is a success in the long run. Clement of Rome, 40 years later, will write that the Corinthian church still stands. Um, so we can rejoice at knowing that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in paradise will be some of the ones Paul wrote this letter to. That's something, again, to rejoice in. He is willing to spend his days. He's willing to be spent for them. 
for their souls. He is willing to give up everything he has in this world in order that they might have life forever. He makes the argument in verse 16 coming from their side, potentially. This is his concern that he expresses at the end of the chapter. He's essentially concerned that when he appears for that third time, the super apostles' false teaching will have overwhelmed Corinth, and when he gets there, they won't have repented of their sins, and they'll stand opposed to Paul and the gospel of Jesus. So verse 16, he mentions it that way that they'll call him crafty, that he was trying to deceive them. He points out that neither he nor Titus have ever tried to deceive them. He expresses to them in the last paragraph um, that they would end up finding him not as they wished. So if they have not listened, if this letter has not brought them to see Paul for their brother in Christ, and if they're listening instead to the super apostles, they will see Paul coming and they will wish that he is that weak man the super apostles told them that he is, that his, his presence in person is empty, it's worthless, it's vanity. And when he comes instead, they will not get that. They will get a sound rebuking from Paul. On the flip side, when he comes, he's afraid he will not find them faithful as he wishes. And that they will... God will humble him before them. In other words, that he will have labored in vain and they will not be a church at all. The last sentence of not repenting of the things that had been practiced there, uh, you can look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, really 9 and 10, list out a whole bunch of sins. And then 11, Paul says, such were some of you. And they're to repent of that as we all are as Christians. So in this chapter, Paul shares with us that it is through weakness that we are strong, as we are pointed to Christ in our weakness. And then he expresses his parental concern as he has planted this church. He is their spiritual father in that way. He's concerned that they have walked away from the faith that they once held. We are thankful to say it does not appear that that is true, uh, that maybe they saw this letter and this letter helped to bring them to repentance and to receive Paul when he did return for that third visit.